When you're lost in the darkness, look for the pod. Specifically, the Prestige TV podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, where we're breaking down every new episode of HBO's The Last of Us. On Sunday nights, grab your battery and join Van Lathan and Charles Holmes for an instant reaction to the latest episode. Then head back to the QZ on Tuesdays for a deep dive with Joanna Robinson and Mallory Rubin. From character arcs to video game adaptation choices, story themes to needle drops, we'll parse every inch of this cordyceps-coated universe. Watch out for mouth tendrils and follow along on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to have this gentleman on the show. We got to, you know what? We got to raise the bar here sometimes, you guys. We got to have some some smarts come into the <laughs> into the joint. <laughs> a little a little prestige, you know. He was the editor of Newsweek, Washington bureau chief, CNN. He's a celebrated author. I mean, all around, just really smart and great guy. And now he has a book called "Saying It Loud: 1966, the Year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights Movement." Mr. Mark Whitaker, welcome to Black on the Air, my friend. Thank you for having me. So good to be here. It's so great to see you. You're a breath of fresh air. I'm not a comedian. I gotta, you know, like <laughs> that's right. But but you have an interesting, like you are into the comedy world. My son is just, my son is a comedy writer, as, as you know. He used to work for you. But. Your son has pulled you in uh, to the comedy world. People people find that out. They say. Your son, your son is a comedy writer. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mark's son, Matt Whitaker, uh, worked with me in the nightly show. Great guy. Real funny. Got a real promising career in front of him. And uh, just going down a different path than Daryl Dad looks like. Yeah. 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 Well, he's its own thing. And I encourage that. <laughs> but uh, I really uh, appreciate your book. When I first saw the title, I was like, oh, wow. That's a, uh, I love that, you know, keying in. Uh, especially that year, such a fascinating time. There's so many windows of that of the movement. It always gets a kind of a blanket treatment, you know. <laughs> I have a dream, you know, and then you know, just all these images. But uh, I appreciate that you're focusing on this particular time. Uh, what what was the impetus for you to to even start writing this book, Mark? Well, you know, I I started. I, I knew I wanted to write a a book about the Black Power movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is I just saw so many parallels with the Black Lives Matter movement. And yeah. I thought it'd be instructive to sort of go back and see, you know, what really happened and what lessons mm -hmm. could, could be drawn. I also have a little bit of a personal connection in that my dad, um, uh, who uh, divorced my mom when I was 
I guess about six years old in the early 60s. Uh-huh. And he was out on the West Coast and he kind of dro- we went back to the East Coast. He dropped out of our lives. Then uh, five years later, he resurfaces as the first head of Afro African American studies at Princeton University. Hmm. The black students had gone on strike to uh, demand black studies. Uh And all of a sudden, my dad, like, he shows up back in my life and he's got an afro and he's wearing a (laughs) shiki. Oh, my God. He teaches me the black power handshake. Wow. You know, I mean, he he wasn't like militant or anything. He wasn't a panther. But, you know, he had definitely changed in terms of his look and his whole consciousness. It's and like so, you go I mean, to Wakanda and then come home, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I obviously at, at that point I was, you know, 12 years old or something. I had mm-hmm. no idea that I would ever write a book about it. But, you know, that, 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 that shift, not just in the politics of the civil mm-hmm. rights movement, but in the whole kind of sense of what it was to be black, yeah. um, kind of always fascinated me. So that, that was the original idea. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and then, to be perfectly honest, what happened in 1966 is, I started like my, for some reason I thought I knew that the slogan black power yeah. had become popular in 1966, you know, mm-hmm. thanks to Stokely Carmichael. So I kind of always figured that would be my starting point. Mm-hmm. But then for some reason I thought that I would take the story to 1972 and the Angela Davis trial and sure. end with her acquittal. And I spent an entire year reporting and doing research and I was still in 1966. <laughs> I had not gotten because and and I, no, I can't I, get out of this year. <laughs> and, no, and it, it turns out that like so much happened in that one year, and that and once I put all that together, I said, you know, I think there's a book just in the, in in everything that happened just just in 1966. Yeah, it's fascinating when you look at all the history that just gets lost. You know, all the detail, all the fine points. People lose. The nuance in the in the rear view, people only see the headlines and don't realize there's a lot of strife within the movement as well as outside of the movement, you know, different forces pulling apart. It's such a fascinating time because it is kind of a dividing line point, I guess, in the movement. Right. Totally. Well, you know, until until 1966, really, there was a pretty consistent story. Mm-hmm. The civil rights movement, starting with the Montgomery voice bus boycott in 55, 56, King becomes a national figure. Right. Um, and then all the way, all the way through the sit-in movement, um, started by students, but then, you know, the, the Freedom Riders, uh, the, 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 the Birmingham campaign in 1963, March on mm-hmm. Washington, 63, mm-hmm. uh, the Selma uh, Freedom Summer in 1964, mm-hmm. the Selma March in 1965. It's all basically and the signing of the civil rights legislation in 1965. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so mm-hmm. the 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 goals are the same, which is basically to pass national legislation to do away mm-hmm. with discrimination and 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 uh, enforce voting rights. And the way in which you go about it is peaceful, nonviolent protest, even right. if your head your heads are being bashed in. Right. You know, you st- you stand there and you take it. Right. And so what happens in 1966 is that you have this new young generation, uh-huh. which is saying a couple of things. First of all, on the tactical level, they're saying, you know, we're not sure that we're still up for all of this kind of just, you know, um, turning the other cheek. Getting the shit beat out of us to get stuff you know, done. It, right. We're not necessarily at that point. They weren't talking about confront, you know arming themselves to confront the cops, um, to confront the National Guard. But they were saying, like, you know, we, we've got to at least reserve the right to defend ourselves. Right. Um, 
And the other thing was, you know, there was a real shift in the idea of like, what are we fighting for anyway? Mm -hmm. um, we passed this legislation. It's only got us so far. Um, King talks about this dream of integration, but it's, well, from what we can see, white folks, if they're inter interested in integration at all, it's only with, a, with you know, middle class, well-educated middle class blacks. See, like, like, you know, poor blacks in the South, sharecroppers, you know, folks in the, in, in, uh, in the North, in the, in, the, in the ghettos, as they were being, starting to be called. Like, you know, white folks don't want to, you know, integrate with them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and also that, you know, we got to start talking about jobs. We got to start talking about housing. We got to start talking about the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. um, and that shift all happens in that one year. Yeah. Do you, did it feel like at that time, especially looking back at it now, that MLK was starting maybe to lose some influence among some, just even if slightly like, because, and when you think about it, you know, okay, civil rights, civil rights act, like white people are thinking, all right, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, why are black people still mad? And within yeah. the movement, as you were saying, people are like, uh, black people are still being killed and there's still things going on. Yeah. I don't know if this thing is going to still be working out. Yeah. And, 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 and what, and, and where the battlefronts on which, when you look, go, go back and look at it, the battlefronts that King was fighting on mm -hmm. were essentially places where there was segregation, but there right. were, you know, a critical mass of middle-class, well-educated Blacks, mm -hmm. right? Some sympathetic whites, right? And so you're talking about these, these larger cities in the South, uh, Atlanta, you know, Selma, um, uh, uh, um, Birmingham, uh, even Memphis, uh, where, where King was assassinated. The, this younger generation, um, so there were two strands of it that that really emerged in 1966. There was the generation, there was a Stokely Carmichael mm -hmm. um, uh, group that took over SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that year, opposing mm -hmm. John Lewis and taking it in a new direction. And SNCC, just to put a pause on that, let's describe SNCC up to that point. It was kind of more of a mainstream. There were white members in there. There right. was uh, the face of SNCC was. Uh, it was, you know, I don't know if non-threatening is the right word, but it was. Uh, it was close to what King's approach was in terms of the face of it. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. So SNCC is an organization that had grown out of the uh, lunch counter sit-in right. that started in sixty sixty one, and uh, there was this amazing woman who isn't well enough known named Ella Baker, hmm. who uh, was older, but she had been in the NACP and, and in King's group, the SCLC. But she got, got all these young people together and she said, you know, you should have your own organization, right? Don't, don't join King's organization. So that's what wow. they did. They formed their own organization mm -hmm. and, their, and their focus was on going into the deep South mm. to register Ooh. black folks, poor black folks, now, these were places where in a lot of these counties in South and Mississippi and Alabama, blacks were in a numerical majority, but they had been kept from voting mm -hmm. for, for generations. Yeah, years and years and years. Yeah. And, and these places were rough. I mean, they were violent mm -hmm. and they were, you know, the Klan was everywhere. The, the, the cops let the Klan operate with impunity. Some of the 
the the police sheriff's deputies themselves were out there killing people sundown towns many of them too yeah yeah but you know for for the first five years or so of snick four or five years um there were white members who joined and were welcome mm-hmm. both as field organizers out out in the field and then even more of them in the atlanta headquarters mm-hmm. um raising money doing communications work and so forth mm-hmm. and so on so and john lewis was the chairman mm-hmm. um, uh, of snick you know and particularly he first became famous with his speech at the march on washington in 63 and then, mm-hmm. and then in 63 and then of course in 65 he gets you know almost Ugh. killed beaten beaten on the cell on the edmund pettus bridge and and he becomes famous yeah. You know, because so that was that was one of the first seminal things that was televised, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Huge, people could huge see the brutality up close. Yeah. Uh, Birmingham and Selma, you know, they would not have had the effect that they had if they weren't television. If it wasn't televised. No question. Yeah. Like to, you know. Anyway. So um, but uh, Lewis, John Lewis was very close to Dr. King. He was actually on the mm. board of King's organization. Mm-hmm. He also was part of this group of leaders from the different organizations who go and meet with LBJ in DC. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, increasingly by 66, there's a whole contingent within SNCC, a, a more militant contingent that looking like all of this. And forgive me, you'll know what this term means, but I mm-hmm. say it in the book. They started to call John Lewis a handkerchief head. Yeah. Right. That's a guy who was just like yeah. a little too eager. I know to you know cozy up to the white establishment. And yeah, I hate reading that kind of stuff. It's very unfortunate because I, I look. I, I agree. I, I, I know where it comes from, but it's just not. It's just well. I, I look honestly. I agree, and I think you know we'll talk about this later. But yeah. one of the lessons, one of them, is just that the cost of internal infighting and all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? but anyway. So um, anyway. So in in uh, John Lewis had been traveling the country raising money for SNCC. Um, uh, for most of the year leading up to the spring of 1966. And SNCC would have these yearly retreats where they would take a week off and like everybody in the organization would, you know, convene someplace. And they'd have, they talk about, you know, what their strategy was going to be for the coming year, but they'd also elect officers Mm -hmm. uh, for the following year. So uh, John Lewis, there's a whole chapter in my book that's just about this. It's, It's really pretty dramatic. Yeah. Um, he, he's been in Europe, um, speaking and raising money. He, he gets, he arrives in at, uh, uh, this, uh, retreat religious camp outside of Nashville, you know, uh, uh, badly jet lagged, um, exhausted, thinking that he is going to be reelected as chairman, uh, pretty easily. And on the last day of the retreat, they have the vote. He actually, in the first vote he he uh he does win pretty handily but enough of the membership is ambivalent that a lot of people abstain mm-hmm. so then one of the more militant members says well wait a second. enough people didn't vote we gotta we gotta revote right so they start this just increasingly heated angry debate that goes on all night long mm. until dawn and at dawn they take a second vote and this time uh, Lewis is defeated by Stokely Carmichael. Yeah. And, you know, it crushed John Lewis. It crushed him because, wow. you know, as far as he was concerned, that, had, you know, Snick had been his whole identity, his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, he had, you know, gone to prison, you know, scores of time. 
you know, um, basically almost given his life multiple times uh, for, for SNCC. And now they were just kicking him to the curb. Um, so he kind of sucked it up and, 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 and put on a brave face and, and so forth, but then quit a couple of months later. But like right out of the box, before anybody even knew most of, you know, the national press even knew who Stokely Carmichael was, the fact yeah. that he, in this very dramatic coup, had, had, yeah. um, had, had ousted John Lewis, that just immediately positioned him as, oh, who's this, you know, dangerous militant new, uh, new, new leader. Yeah. It's so fascinating um, to go back just one step. You open the book talking about um, Sammy Young. Is that how you pronounce it? Young or Young? Sammy Young. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was a story I did not know. You know? Yeah. I, I didn't know the story of Sammy Young. Uh, this, uh, I'll say kid, you know, was shot by you know, shop owner, typical fashion, you know, but it's such a, like an inciting incident for both Stokely and this year in many ways. Right? Yeah. It happened on the, literally the third day of the year, January 3rd. And, and in the book, um, you know, I go through again, one of the things about choosing 1966 was mm. um, I could really show how uh, all of these events sort of fed on each other. Yeah. over the year um in happening in different places mm -hmm. um and you know each chapter is 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 focused around um uh you know a big event that happened yeah. in a specific place and then you shift you know the anyway so on the third day of uh of january uh sammy young was a student at tuskegee institute um which uh you know uh, an hbcu you know a black college but 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 very you know well established it had mm -hmm. been started by booker t washington yep um there were a lot of black students there who weren't militant at all they were just you know getting their education they were going to go into the professions become doctors and lawyers mm -hmm. and so forth um uh sammy young's he had he had grown up there too in that town his dad worked mm -hmm. in in the veterans hospital so he came from this very middle-class family. He had even right. gone to prep school in, uh, in the, in the East for a couple of years, gone into the military. Your typical um, uppity Negro in those days. Yeah. 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 You know, kind of like the, the kind of like in those days, you know, he was kind of like a frat boy, you know, it sure. was like, there was this whole contingent, you know, the talented 10th, mm -hmm. you know, Du Bois called them, mm -hmm. you know, all these, you know, HBCUs, you'd find these, these, you know, um, you know, they, they dress like preppies and, uh -huh. you know, anyway, so that was kind of where he was coming from, but he, he sort of got, um, uh, radical, not radicalized, but, um, you know, he, he became interested in activism after, after, uh, Selma, uh -huh. um, actually watching you talk about TV, uh -huh. these, these black students, there was a black students, uh, organization at Tuskegee, they all watched the footage of John Lewis getting beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And that's what they decided that they were going to go to Montgomery and, 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 and stage their own protests. And that's what mm -hmm. sort of got him started. Um, so, um, but in 1966, he had spent the day that day registering voters in the area, black voters. He, there was a party on campus that night. So he goes mm -hmm. to the party. And it's just like a typical, you know, yeah. 
and people are showing up and they're playing music. And then, you know, there's, there's, there's alcohol. And then at a certain point, people like get hungry and uh, around midnight, a little before midnight, he volunteers. So he was, because, you know, his, he had some money, he had a car, which, you know, probably most of the students didn't have. And they're looking for mayonnaise because they want to make tuna fish sandwiches. <laughs> of, and somebody, all, of all and, the metaphors. <laughs> and, and, somebody, and somebody's run out of cigarettes. So he says, yeah, I'll make a run into town. Of all in my, the metaphors. In my blue Volkswagen bug right. um, to, uh, you know, to get some. T- anyway, so he goes in. He, he needs to fill up his, his Volkswagen. And then there's a convenience store right in town. He goes in. While he's there buying, you know, the tuna fish and the, uh, the, the mayonnaise and, and the cigarettes, he asked to use the restroom. There was a, you know, and this old guy behind the counter, white guy, says, like points him towards the rear, like outside. You can use the, you know, the restroom outside, but not the one inside. And so they get into an argument. The guy pulls out a gun. Sammy says, okay, I'm out of here. Walks out of the store. The guy pursues him into the street shoots him dead. Huh. Now, it was it was interesting because here the, his story was different because there had been all these students starting the sit-in movement and the Freedom Riders who they know they knew they were going, you know, you know, risking arrest sure. and, you know, even even worse by doing what they were doing. But here was like this like middle class kid in a pretty uh-huh. safe southern town just going into town to get some stuff because to bring back to a party and he gets yeah. shot dead. So it actually there were a lot of particularly at the HBCUs across the south and uh, um, a lot of students who hadn't particularly been, you know, that that involved in the movement who were really, it was, it was Sammy, the news of Sammy Young's mm-hmm. murder. It kind of you know, hit differently. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And the shopkeeper, of course. Is, and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, of course, he comes on trial. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's acquitted in an hour by, you know, an all-white jury. You know? That's the second part of it that always falls in place, too, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, caused the outrage. And, you know, Stokely Carmichael, he was very charismatic at that time, too. And I, I think... You know, with that kind of death happening again and that kind of, uh, you know, it was almost inevitable to happen, with, you know, with the energy that was happening at that moment for somebody like Stokely to to emerge, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, no. I mean, because like, so if you yeah. think about so so you have this new generation that's come up watching what's happened in the previous decade. And, um, you know, Stokely and the SNCC folks had gone into places in the South that King and, and, you know, his group wouldn't even go. So, 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 so they, they had a different view of nonviolence, partly on like, you know, we can't go into places like, you know, Lowndes County, Alabama, and these other places, you know, where everybody's got a shotgun and, 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 and black folks were armed and say like, you, you, you know, you can't use your shotguns if you're, you know, attacked, you know, by the Klan. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and in the North, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, who formed the, the, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Oakland later mm-hmm. that year. Um, again, it was like a different, they had had a different experience. Um, first of all, they had been, they came from families that had moved North from the South in the Great Migration, right? Thinking that they were going to get better jobs, thinking that they were going to get better housing. 
And after World War II, when all the jobs dried up and all the white folks moved to the suburbs, like all of a sudden these black neighborhoods essentially, you know, became slums and, you know, the yeah. investment in them dried up and they, they built highways that cut them off from the middle of town and, and so forth. So they just had a very different vision of what life was like for black folks and what black folks were up against, mm -hmm. you know, in dealing with the Klan in the South and dealing with police in the North. Um, and, you know, unlike King, the King generation, which had sort of come out of the church right. in the South. So, you know, some of them had grown up in religious families, but they weren't as religious. They didn't have this, you know, sort of tradition of, of deference. They used to call behind his back, they called, King the Lord, <laughs> the Lord, <laughs> you know, so, so they were kind of irreverent as well. Uh -huh. They, you know, and, um, you know, so a lot of it was generational, you know, yeah. it was, it was, you know, you can, you can, you can be a political scientist about the whole thing, yeah. but part of it was just what we see throughout history, which is like the, you know, the young generation just wants to, they is want something different. And, and they want to do things ways differently. Yeah, and it's really uh, even the phrase "black power" has such a different energy than nonviolent resistance. You know, yeah, yeah, totally. you know? Uh, what was what was the meaning of black power as it was first expressed? And and I think uh, you know, Soka Carmichael had to be reminded he wasn't the first one to use that term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. in the book too. Yeah, no, Willie Ricks. There was a guy named Willie Ricks who really he kind of yeah. road tested it. And uh -huh. then he turned it over to Stokely and Stokely, you know, when Stokely started saying it, everybody yeah. started paying attention. Yeah. So what was the meaning of it first? What, what were the, what was, what was the goal of the exclamation of black power? Uh, the way it was first exclaimed, do you think? So the original idea was, and again, going back to this place called Lowndes County in Alabama, uh -huh. in Mississippi, SNCC had been involved in helping folks on the ground, Fannie Lou Hamer, most famously. Uh -huh. form first register to vote and then form a faction of the democratic party the mississippi freedom democrats uh -huh. black uh faction of the democratic party they go to atlantic city in 1964 the democratic convention pushing to get the democratic party to, to seat them instead of the white democrats from mississippi who are all segregations right? Mm -hmm. They think they have a deal to do this. And at the end of the day, in their view, they're double-crossed by LBJ and mm -hmm. Hoover Humphrey, who, at, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer gives this, this, you know, famous speech on the floor of the convention covered on TV. Um, but uh, the uh, LBJ, uh, at the end of the day, just brokers this deal where all they're offered is two token seats, mm -hmm. uh, non-voting seats, and Fannie Lou Hamer says, hell no, I didn't, you know, as famously, she says, I didn't come all the way here for no two seats. Right. They leave, they walk out. So the lesson of that for Stokely and some of the other people involved is like, what's the point of registering blacks uh -huh. to vote in places like Mississippi and Alabama when all the candidate, all the candidates that they have to vote for are white supremacists? Right, right, exactly. So, so what Stokely <laughs> mm -hmm. uh does and it's sort of a miracle even that he did this he goes into Lowndes County Alabama uh -huh. and where blacks were you know over 80 percent of the population but none of them had been allowed to vote uh in in 60 years 
Mm. And uh, first he registers, you know, a critical mass of them. And then he gets them rather than to uh, form their own political party. Uh They have a nominating convention and everything. They elect candidates. By the summer of, of 66, he had gotten as far as actually forming this party giving it a symbol. It was called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. But, you know, in, in, in Alabama, there were so many people who were literate. You had to have a symbol that people could, could recognize, yeah. sharecroppers and so forth. And what was the symbol? It was the Black Panther. That's it's what amazing. That, that was the original Black Panther. So, so that, that appeared before the Black Panther movie. Yeah, yeah, well. yes. That's Huey, so interesting. Huey Newton yeah. and Bobby Seale just stole the name, the symbol, oh. the drawing, the whole thing. Wow. <laughs> they appropriated it. Uh, I, we can talk later about how that happened. But anyway, so originally when Stokely was talking about black power, he was talking about we're going to um, use our voting power mm-hmm. to elect our own candidates. Right. It's not that radical. It's not that radical an idea. Right. Right. Um, and later that actually starts to happen. Not under the banner of black power, but just, you know, a couple of years later, you start to have black mayors and yeah. you know, black congressmen and so forth and so on. But when the white press heard the term black power, uh-huh. they just assumed it was all about violence and revolution and retribution. Right. You know, and honestly, it, it, you know, the whole movement, Stokely himself, the Panthers, they all got more radical yeah. with time pretty quickly. But yeah. at the beginning, actually, the, 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 the caricature of them yeah. was a lot more violent than the reality. Let's talk about the role of the press, because I feel like there's not enough said about how um, culpable the press has been, even way before this, in stoking fears of white people and that kind of stuff and mischaracterizing. But during this time, it seems like, and you point out in your book, there, you know, were... I'm trying to find the right word. Almost like blatantly trying to divide the movement. It seemed like you know. Yeah, or, you know. I mean, I, you know, as someone who's who, <laughs> sorry, sorry, journalist, sorry, press, a journalist, a journalist myself. Well, look, sorry, I, 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 I actually, I, I kind of like. I, I'm, I'm interested in it, and I think I kind of understand how it how it works. And we're talking the mainstream press now. I'm not even yeah, talking yeah. about like fringe outlets. I know. think the effect is what you're talking about, mm-hmm. which was, it was very de- uh, divisive. Well, you mentioned the, the, the story about the, the meet the press incident. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll talk about that. I'll yeah. talk about that. So, so, um, you know, but I think then as now often it's really just about ratings. I mean, it's just about getting, yeah you know, selling newspapers, right? Right. So, uh, so what happens is Stokely Carmichael, the first time Stokely, Stokely Carmichael publicly chants black power is in the mm-hmm. middle of the Meredith March in Greenwood, Mississippi. So James Meredith, who had become famous for integrating the University of Mississippi right. in 1963, all hell breaks loose. They have to send in, you know, the, the, the National Guard to protect him. By 1966, he's in law school in New York, mm-hmm. and he decides, he was a sort of an eccentric guy, he decides to go down and, and um, have his own solo march across Mississippi wow. to uh, encourage Black folks to, um, uh, uh, to vote. Uh, he shows up with like this African pith helmet and <laughs> cane. And, anyway, on the, on the second day oh of God. this march, 
a, a this this drunk white supremacist jumps out from behind the bush on the side of the highway and shoots him, you know, peppers him with 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 uh, pellets from a bird gun. Mm-hmm. Luckily, it was a bird gun because if it had been a real gun, he would have been dead because, mm-hmm. you know, um, but he's badly wounded. He has to be hospitalized. He can't carry on the march. But all of these other uh, leaders of all the major civil rights uh, groups decide that they're going to convene, um, uh, descend on Mississippi to carry on his march. So that's uh-huh. what happens. It becomes known as the Meredith March. So in the middle of that march, they get to Greenwood, Mississippi, and uh, Stokely has Stokely had been there previously as an organizer for SNCC. So he knew folks in the community. He reaches out to the local black segregated school to get permission to erect tents for the marchers so they can stay overnight. Uh He's in the middle of doing that and the cops show up and arrest him for say that he doesn't have the right to do that. He spends the afternoon in jail. Uh, By the time he gets out, it's the evening and they're they're having a rally on a sandlot field in Greenwood. And they've assembled, you know, like 500 locals and people who have been on the march. And he gets on the back of a truck and he, you know, they were used to the, the, the old civil rights chant was freedom now. Mm-hmm. So at the end of at these kinds of rallies, the speakers would say, what do we want? And the crowd would say freedom now. Anyway, so Stokely, mm. again, Willie Ricks had been, had, had been protesting this in, in small churches along the way. And he whispers in his ear, Stokely says, drop it now. He says that they're ready for it. So Stokely gets up there and instead of saying freedom now, he starts saying, we want black power. And 500, you know, these 500 people in the field say, we want black power. We want black power. And it goes back and forth, call and response, you know, for 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 at least five minutes. And anyway, the next day there was an associated, a, a, a little associated press wire story that was picked up by 200 newspapers mm-hmm. across I know this now because of newspapers.com. It's an online archive. So I could actually, <laughs> I could actually like wow. document how many, how many places that story was picked up. Three days later, so this is a Thursday night, Stokely Carmichael was booked on TV for the first time. Yeah. On Face the Nation. Right. And so he goes, they fly him to Washington. He's there, you know, the panel format, interviewed mm-hmm. by three journalists. And immediately they start saying, well, this, this slogan, Black Power, what does it mean? You know, are you talking about armed revolution? Are you talking right. about... Anyway, so uh, I interviewed one of the people on the panel, uh, yeah. the, the one surviving member, uh, who's someone actually... He, at the time, he was a young reporter for the Boston Globe named Jim Doyle. Oh, uh, I, I later worked with him when I was a college intern for Newsweek magazine. Uh-huh. Later, he was in the Newsweek Bureau in Washington, so I knew him. I tracked him down. I got him to like, you know, I asked him about his recollection of that. He said, oh, yeah, well, you know, we were just trying to p- get Stokely to pick up, pick a fight with Dr. King on air so that, we could, get, so that we could get a headline <laughs> in the Monday new- newspaper. He said, like, you know, that was it. We said it was well known at the time that that the, uh, the main agenda of the so-called what we now call the Sunday shows, you know, mm-hmm. face the nation, meet the press was to generate news that would get make headlines, you know, on Monday. Uh-huh. And so, like, from the get-go, the press was trying to position 
Stokely mm-hmm. as, you know, the nemesis of Dr. King. He's an agitator. This agitator. Where, whereas, as, as and, you know, when you read the book, you'll see their relationship was a lot more complicated. I yeah. mean, Stokely definitely had a more militant message, but on a personal level, they had a lot of mutual respect. And, Absolutely. And No, no, no. Reading that passage in the book, it's very interesting, you know, because once again, your context for the times and everything and seeing how, you know, things were actually uh, what was actually going on. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. I think I have a position that I'm sure a lot of people don't agree with, but, you know, I never care about that, Mark. But um, I always felt the anti-war movement was a distraction in the civil rights movement, and it kind of aligned from, this is just my point of view, the civil rights movement with more on the left as part of a leftist type of movement, as opposed to being a human rights movement, which of course it rightly is, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Um, because it's, it, it just became aligned with that. And even in your book, you can see, I mean, the whole story about Julian Bond is fascinating, right. you know, um, how he was kind of, you know, you, you point out that he was, he may have been naive at that point, you know, in the book in terms of how he handled the press. But to me, I felt that was unnecessary for the civil rights movement to have to be aligned with the anti-war movement. It's like, look, we got, this is our own movement, you know, because to me that anti-war movement was really, I think that was to me spearheaded by kind of a white middle class, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that came from the left. And it was so de- at that point, when I say divisive, it was divisive in terms of right and left uh, mm-hmm. at that point in America. Right, you know? right. Whereas I feel like the civil rights movement was different. You know, mm-hmm. it had the ability to include both right and left. Sometimes, you know, it right. did. they were, and in fact, the political parties even were mixed with right and left during that time before the whole, right. you know, civil rights movement. What is your opinion on that? Because even, uh, I feel like there must've been some regret from, you know, and not that they were wrong about their positions. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that, you mm-hmm. know, but it's having to, take on that movement as, as if that was the purpose of it. No, 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 no. It's like, it's an example maybe of, of injustice for us, but that movement had its own type of, of uh, patina, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you really raise a good point. And you know, that, that you can see, you can, you can see, you can see that in the book. I mean, I, I think that there were kind of, it had an effect on two levels. One, Mm -hmm. you know, with LBJ, and the relationship between LBJ and the movement. Yeah. Right. So what LBJ would say was, I did all these things for, for, for black folks. I passed, you know, the 64 uh, mm-hmm. Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act. And then they turned against me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, uh, on, 
meaning the anti-war movement. Yeah, yeah. And really, you know, SNCC was the first uh, organization to come out against the war. It was not, you know, their number one priority. Right. (laughs) But, you know, they, they, you know, they did. And but then, you know, partly because, you know, pushed by them, but then also because of his own reservations by a year later, 67, King comes out publicly against the war. Yeah. And his speech in, in Riverside Church. Yes. And and LBJ feels betrayed. So he mm-hmm. can't separate the two. He can't say in his own mind, look, they have a right to oppose the war, um, but I'm still going to be supportive of civil rights. And even in the in his State of the Union address in 1966, people forget this. He had a an additional voting rights act. You know, um, that was uh, because he he recognized everybody recognized that the first two vote, vote, the first two civil rights acts weren't enough. Mm-hmm. Right. So this third one was going to focus on housing. It was going to focus on enforcement of voting rights. Mm-hmm. And by the time he gives his State of the Union address in 1966, it's a, like a paragraph a minute at the end of the speech because he spends the whole first part of it talking about Vietnam. Mm. Right. So from the point of view of the movement. They're like, wait a second, you made such a big deal about your commitment to civil rights, but now mm-hmm. all you care about is selling the war. Right. Right. So, so at that, at just that level, it really, um, the, 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 the whole sense of, of, uh, of, of cooperation and allyship with the Johnson administration fell apart over the war. But then you also have the effect that it had. Now, look, there were plenty of, of 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 young black activists uh, who also were you know against the war, but it was not their number one priority in the way it was for the white kids, right? Sure, right, exactly. And, yeah, and so mm-hmm. when you when you look at this whole story of like, well, what what happened with you know the whites, the white members of SNCC first leaving and then eventually being kicked out, you <laughs> yes, know? Yes. And, and so, and Sorry again, like a lot of these that. things, it's like, it's like this mm-hmm. Rashomon, like it depends who you talk I know. to. And what happened when, what order? Very different interpretation of who was to yeah. blame. Right. Right. And so what a lot of, and look, some of them are still alive. I interviewed a bunch of them, you know, some of these white full-fledged members or sympathizers of SNCC there, a lot of them would say, well, you know, we weren't welcome anymore. They kicked us out, right? Mm. What a lot of the black veterans of the of this of you know this period would say was they were out of there anyway. Like once the war came along, that became their number one priority. Yeah. They they, you know, they wanted to focus on the SDS, the student, you know, through a democratic mm. society, the anti-war movement. They weren't gonna, you know. They weren't interested in going into the South and registering sharecroppers anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, but but there is no there's there's no question that um, both of both things that you said are true. That the the nature of the anti-war movement was different than the civil rights movement and even the Black Power movement, yeah. but that to the degree that they intersected. You know, it, it, it did that in and of itself had an effect 
on the civil rights movement. I feel it had a, a, a bad effect on the movement is my opinion on that. Um, like even when you look at the 1968 political convention, uh, Democratic convention in Chicago, the, you know, the energy was anti-war, not civil rights. Oh, totally. You know? yeah, yeah. Which is fascinating. Like in just four years, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. just that amount of time, how it just shifted of what, of what it seemed like the youth cared about at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was on the heels of King being assassinated. It was just happened months earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I, I think, I think that's, and I, you know, I think that young generation starting in 66, you know, with, with black power and going into 68 and, you know, even the stuff that, you know, I mean, it's so interesting now that, you know, thankfully there's, there's, you know, a lot of, you know, really serious history that's now being done about what were called the riots in the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this brilliant scholar, she was at Harvard, she's now at Yale, named Elizabeth Hinton, who's written a couple of books about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we grew up hearing them, even, even within Black community, they were, you know, you know, accepting the idea that there were riots. And, yeah. and, and she says, no, they were rebellions, mm-hmm. you know, and they may not have been, you know, organized. There may have been a certain amount of, of, of spontaneity to it, but they had deep roots mm-hmm. in, you know, the, um, the resentment and, and, you know, that, that these communities had about the way they were being policed, mm-hmm. um, about the way, you know, what had happened to their neighborhoods, the way opportunities had dried out. Again, it's like, I, I see it all, and I say, you know, I write about this in the book as, you know, a my last book was about the legacy of the Black community of Pittsburgh in the middle of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they had the Pittsburgh Courier, the greatest Black newspaper, they had these great Negro League baseball teams, um, the um, uh, all these great jazz musicians. So that was sort of the, the first phase of the great migration was august wilson from pittsburgh yeah and august wilson yeah came out of he was writing all about pittsburgh yeah yeah yeah. Anyway, yeah yeah and he said all his most of his plays in pittsburgh yeah so so um that's sort of the first phase of of the great migration yeah. um but in many ways there was a second phase and, a, and you know a very sad phase mm-hmm. um uh you know starting in the 60s um and again as i said as a result of white flight Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, policing, disinvestment, urban renewal, where these communities that um, had, uh, you know, faced discrimination, but still had a kind of a vibrant, self-sustaining life. Yeah, you know, for thirty, forty years after because the Great of segregation, migration, because right. of segregation, right? You know, it was kind of like an alternative universe, but it was you know with businesses Absolutely. and churches and institutions and schools and so forth, professionals, lawyers, doctors, right? right. You know. All that gets sort of destroyed, um, uh, starting uh, starting in the sixties and. You know, a lot of the militancy, the greater militancy that you see in 1966 is mm-hmm. also can be explained by what happened in those in in, in so many of those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just beginning to happen. It's, and it's gotten worse since then. It is it's, it's such a, you know, 
it's so interesting because you're so right. Because my family's from Chicago, you know, and and my dad used to talk about that. How you know you go to a black lawyer, black black dentist, you had all those things there, and mm-hmm. how the irony of desegregation was mm-hmm. kind of the collapse of this black infrastructure, right. you know, that left a lot of these neighborhoods with only like one class as opposed to multi-class, yes. you yes. know, right. which is, which also kind of allows for even a more radical element to be the voice, I think, yes. because do you also, do you think during this time, uh, like what was the, the black middle class opinion of like the black Panther party? Cause I love in your book and I appreciate the fact that you put out their 10 point plan. I think it's 10 point plan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and reading it now, it's interesting how, a lot of it is very harmonic to Black yeah. Lives Matter you know, yeah. in many ways. Some oh, of the yeah. same things are being asked yeah. for. But how did the black middle class take that? Because my remembrance of that is like my father was not a supporter of the Black Panther in yeah. that, you know, he was more of that old school. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I think that, I, I think that's fair. I think I think the support for the Panthers um, uh, was almost entirely young folks is generational. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, of older folks, um, you know, you know, some, some of them viewed the Panthers as frightening. Others, you know, thought that just, they were sort of foolish. Um, Uh it was all for show both because they, they sounded radical, but also because they looked (laughs) so cool and they carried guns and they carried guns and they had the leather jackets and the berets. Yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that they, scandalize not only white people but older black people that just made them more attractive <laughs> right exactly, of, exactly. Black. they were a marketer's dream <laughs> yeah, yeah, right yeah exactly. they were really seen as dangerous and i you know reading the you know 10 point plan too i mean one of them called for the release of all blacks from all prisons yeah no some <laughs> of it some of it, yes. some of it was really radical and pretty but but one of the things, but I point out in the book, actually, I mean, you can go through the 10 point plan and you can say, well, you know, some of it was prescient. They were talking about reparations. They were, yeah. you know, some of it was totally unrealistic, but actually of the 10 points, it was point number seven that really was their practical agenda coming out of the gate. And that mm-hmm. was monitoring the police. Yeah. Right. And this was not an entirely new idea. It was well, actually, it was kind of their, one of their founding one of the reasons why they formed too was to protect their neighborhoods. Like they that was follow, it. That was it. Would, that was really they what they were the, up to. They, yeah, you know, the they rest follow it, the police. Exactly. Yeah, the, yeah. the rest of it was kind of pie in the sky at that moment. Mm-hmm. But the thing that they literally were, you know, planning to do, right, um, uh, was, and this had been done elsewhere. There was a a community police patrol that had formed after the Watts riots in L.A. Hmm, okay. where black folks were basically going around, riding around, looking for places where cops mm-hmm. were interacting with people in the community and just keeping an eye on them, just right? not confronting right. them, not saying anything, just exactly. standing across the street. Like, <laughs> you know, when you think about it now, it's like, you know, why do we know about all of these horrific incidents of, of police violence now in mm-hmm. Memphis and elsewhere? Because of, because of you know, cell, yeah. the f- cell phones, you know, body cam, you know, cameras on street lampposts. So they were kind of, this was before all of that. So it was almost like a human version of that. Right. Yeah. And, but, but Huey Newton, who's this very fascinating uh, guy, you know, he had, he, he had learning disability problems as a mm. kid. 
he, he taught himself to read pretty late, but then he became sort of, you know, very, you know, a big reader, self-taught. Mm-hmm. He used to go like to, to spend time in law libraries, like trying to figure out like, well, you know, mm-hmm. how can I use the law to my, you know, to, to, to our advantage. And, um, had discovered that in California at the time they had what were called open carry gun laws. So that That's you, right. it was legal to carry guns around with you in public as long as people could see them. Right. Right. So he says, well, you know, we're citizens too. We're black folks. And so this is what, you know, so instead of just having an unarmed civilian patrol, his idea was like, we're going to show up to keep an eye on the police with our guns. So they see that we're armed. Right. right to citizens. Yeah. 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 And so that was the original thing. And once they formed, that's that was what they were doing. Right. Um, and again, particularly when you look at the fact that we're still dealing with this this stuff, you mm-hmm. know, it had none of it's gotten better. And, you know, um, in all this time, that is not people think of the Panthers as being so radical. Well, that that, that original idea was was actually not a crazy idea. No, it was very reasonable. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, you know, that's why I go back to the media and that kind of stuff, how it's kind of uh, the symbiotic uh, relationship that they get portrayed in a certain way. And then they start acting out in the way that they're being portrayed, you know, how that would happen. Yeah. I, look, I, look, I'm, I'm really glad that you got that from the book because, yeah. you know, people always ask me, well, well, what are the lessons, you know? Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of lessons we can talk about, but. Um, that definitely happened mm-hmm, that it, it became, it wasn't, I guess, self-fulfilling prophecy is not the right word for mm-hmm, it, yeah. but they start out with these, when you actually go back and you look at it, mm-hmm. these initial objectives that particularly in, in light of, you know, where we are today, don't look crazy at all. No, they had like a free lunch, free lunch for kids doing stuff like that. Breakfast press lunch. starts immediately covering them as though they are crazy and radical, right? And almost because of the mischaracterization, they they become increasingly outrageous mm-hmm. and provocative in in you know in their in their rhetoric. So it kind of feeds on itself. Yeah. Um, and look honestly. You know, think about Black Lives Matter, defund the police. Okay. So, Black Lives Matter, this historic, you know, really and quite moving outpouring of support for racial justice in the light, in the, in the wake of um, George Floyd's uh, murder, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How many, okay, there were signs out there, defund the police, there were people talking about that, but really, mm-hmm. what percentage? of all the people who are out in the streets there were really calling for defunding the police, right? Mm-hmm. But you know what? All of a sudden, folks on the right, you know, make it sound like it wasn't the Black Lives Matter movement, it was the defund the police movement, as though that's like the whole thing was just about that, mm-hmm. you know? And then in response to that, you have some people kind of, you know, digging in their heels, and then saying things that then on Fox News they can use to make it look even more extreme. And mm-hmm. so, look, I mean, you know, I think about the early civil rights movement where they did months and months of training to deal yeah. with, you know, when you're attacked, this is That's what you right. do. I That's almost right. feel like if you're an activist today, you need media training. You absolutely. <laughs> you, need, you need training in how to discipline yourself and be ready 
for Absolutely. how the media is going to distort things. Because if you're not, you're going to fall into a trap. You go back to your Julian Bond story. You know, if you point out that out, you know, I didn't know that that happened. I'm so happy you had it in there. But it, it really, to me, is a lesson in media training more than anything yeah. else, you know. Yeah. But uh, I feel like, not to go off on a tangent, but to me, the biggest fault to me of the modern Black Lives Matter movement is a lack of leadership, you know, lack yeah. of true organization, which they kind of proudly proclaimed in the beginning. Well, we don't have a leader, you know, this and that. I'm like, mm, you may want to think about, you know, organizing a little more carefully and be thoughtful because things can be twisted very quickly and yeah. you know unless you're really mindful of what your objectives are yeah. you know and I don't think these organizations necessarily have to have prescriptions you know they can have goals but not necessarily prescriptions because those are the things especially if they're not lawmakers and if you don't know how to write laws or the complexity of what types of laws should be in the books and that types of things you shouldn't be prescribing laws you know right. but you right. can prescribe goals for what you want to see happen in society and that type of thing they're just different you know like defund the police is such a very specific prescription right you know where you know now you have to deal with people over language of law as opposed to supporting right. you know a macro movement that, yeah. that's where i think it's kind of falling short yeah, yeah but, let, but let's stay on, on on leadership i'm glad you brought that up because yeah. i totally agree in fact you know as you know you've read the book i mean that's that's really the note i end on yeah um and it was interesting because i i happened to interview alicia garza one of the founders of the black lives movement uh, in the fall of 220, like in the wake of, of all mm. of those protests, she had just come out with a memoir. And uh, I do some occasional reporting for, for uh, CBS Sunday morning show. And so I interviewed her. I read, the, I read her book and then I interviewed her. And she says, you know, leadership is, is, is overrated and, you know, and so forth and so on. And we don't, we don't really need we don't need one leader. You know, we can have you know, this idea that somehow everybody's a leader. Um, and, you know, honestly, you don't only have to look at 1966 and 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 in the civil rights movement. You can look at, you know, um, uh, the independence movement in India. You can look at, you know, mm -hmm. the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. Mm -hmm. What history shows us is. Um, it's not all about leaders. You know, you do need, you know, grassroots, you know, energy and support and so mm -hmm. forth. But you also need leadership. You know? I think so. Because people like to relate to human beings, not just issues, you know. Yeah. So uh, you need someone who can kind of, you know, kind of um, uh, give a sense of direction and also someone for other people to interact with. You Absolutely. know, so, and I mean, again, go back to defund the police. If, you know, the, if, 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 if the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, if, if, if the Dr. King or the Malcolm X, you know, of yesteryear were around to be recognized by the press, by the establishment press as the leader of this movement, right? Mm -hmm. um, the press can go to them and say, well, what do, what do we have to say about defund the police? And then that person could, you know, set them straight about like, what we're saying and what we're not saying, right? Um, and, um, you know, it's really interesting because getting to Malcolm X, and I say this at the end of my book, so he, so this is, I, write, I decided to write a book in 1966. And I, you know, and as people ask me what I'm doing, I'd say, and, and like a lot of people who didn't really remember the dates would say, oh, Malcolm X, right? And I would say, 
No, he was assassinated in 65. He wasn't That's around. Right. You right. know what? He's still a huge figure in 1966 in debt. Yeah. You know, because they all, all of them think and say and write that they're trying to carry on his struggle. He was, the, he, was the, he was he was the hero to them in a way that Dr. King was not, right? Yeah. But what's kind of sad is it's not at all clear that what they were doing in his name is what he would have done. And certainly right. I think that if he had still been around, he he had the ability to maintain, you know, the respect of he was King's age, exactly the same age, 39. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when he when he was killed. Um, uh, they weren't, he was a little bit older, but they were the same age at the time of their assassinations. Um, so he was older than these, these, the, the black power generation who were mm-hmm. you know, almost all in their twenties, but they mm-hmm. all looked up to him where yeah. they, they, they would, res- would respect his word in a way that they wouldn't necessarily with, uh, you know, with Dr. King. Um, but particularly when you look at where he was going at the end of his life, you know, I think that he uh, he would have lent the whole thing a sense of coherence and strategy and maturity mm-hmm. that I think was lacking when it was just, you know, the kids themselves. Well, and also Malcolm X had gone on a journey. You know, he he wasn't just one type of thing the whole time. He was oh, no. an ev- yeah. he was a revolutionary figure and an evolutionary figure at the same time. And ironically, when you talk about leadership, it was because of leadership issues that he was assassinated. You know, yeah. that he dare said something that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was not happy about. Right. And who's the voice of our organization? Isn't that interesting? Right. That yeah. You're not the voice. You can't say that shit. And that was well. I couldn't even. And look, he was ready. He was ready to walk away from the nation of Islam. It wasn't even a power struggle. He wasn't trying to. He was just trying to get away. And the the tragedy is that this, you know, that this historic figure who could have done so much if he had, if he had, uh, yeah, he'd been allowed to live was essentially assassinated because he blew the whistle on. A corrupt leader who was, you know, had had a hypocritic, hypocritical private life. Yeah. And, you know, Malcolm X was more interested in the truth and he, you know, his famous trip to Mecca and all that. He was such an interesting figure. It's so sad. Like at the time that who knows what we would have gotten out of Malcolm X during that time, you know. I agree. Um, And and again, when you think again, not not just what happened in 66 with black power. But you think about, you know, the urban unrest of, you know, just how violent and and uh, and everything became um, just to have someone who, you know, came out of the north, understood mm-hmm. conditions, you know, yeah. in, 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 you know, these northern neighborhoods had been in prison, mm-hmm. had the respect, but was, you know, um, you know, but was also just brilliant, you know, and yeah. so clear in his in his messaging um, and so uncorruptible. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that that's that's the other thing that I think is kind of like um, ultimately, particularly if you're talking about, you know, leading uh, social movements, movements for you know racial and social justice. That incorruptibility piece uh-huh. is is powerful, and yeah. you know, and I think it's one reason, honestly, that I don't think 
you know, in all these decades since, no one has really emerged to fill the shoes of a Dr. King or a Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. It's because the temptations are too great now. Mm-hmm. The temptations just to like be on TV, sell books, become a celebrity, you know, even the even the people who are now identified as the leaders of activist movements and are called leaders. That's one of the reasons why I, I'm a little sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter generation, because they're young enough that they 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 haven't seen uncorruptible leadership. Right. <laughs> right? So in their mind, the people they think of as you know leaders are people who may have been called leaders mm-hmm. by by white America, you know, the black leaders of black America. But in their eyes, they're like, really, they're, you know, they're not entirely, you know, um, persuaded by I, I won't name the names, but we know who they are. Yeah, sure. you know? I mean, they've, they've done good work. Absolutely. But, but they they haven't had the level of just sheer courage and self-sacrifice of a Dr. King or a Malcolm X. No, the times are just different for that type of thing. And, you know, um, I so appreciate you being here with me, Mark. Guys, saying it now, 1966, the year Black Power Challenge the Civil Rights Movement, which really, I mean, it's a deep, it's a good rabbit hole to go down because, as I was saying, so much history gets lost, especially the complexities, the nuances, you know, you do a great job of putting flesh and blood on these people, you know, where they're not just these figures that we, you know, we look no, up well, to. Well, thank you for saying that, because honestly, yeah. you know, I, I look, I, I, you know, we've talked a lot about a, a lot of big themes and ideas here, but, you know, it's also a very human story. Absolutely. It is. Uh, but, you know, yeah. and I and I and I try to do justice to that. And, and yeah. you know, I, I think I think people who read the book will also find that, you know. It's, yeah. it's just a, a good human story at the same no, time. No, it really is. And one particular thing, and then, you know, he goes, Soakley Carmichael, even when you talk about how he got sick over, you know, hearing about the death and just describing that really humanizes him too. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just how, oh, it's just, it made every part of himself just, just sick, you know. Yeah, no, he had periods of, yeah, we had breakdowns. I mean, really, you know, times when he just couldn't take it anymore and he'd just yeah. go off and get drunk or he'd kind of, you know. Yeah. Um, so he's, but, you know, and again, you know, you really have to keep in mind, and I think it's sort of clear when you read the book, these guys were kids. I mean, you know, so, I know they were so, so young, 26, you think about like, you know, you, you can, and they were having all this thrust upon them, you know, yeah. that, I mean, to some degree they wanted to, you know, step up and run these organizations and so forth and so on. But you know who's ready to be, have like be have the national spotlight on them and and the white press you know turning mm-hmm. them and saying like you know the 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 spokesman the militant new spokesman for young black America <laughs> right, right. twenty five you know right let alone Jagger Hoover and yeah, yeah, all yeah, the crap yeah, he was exactly. doing which we don't even have right, time yeah. to go through now saying it loud you guys it's a great read pick it up. Mark Whitaker, thank you so much for being here. It's so great to see you. All right. Great conversation. Thank you so much for having me.